and welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. I'm Chad. And I'm Eli. And this week we're going to cover... Before we do that, we should actually introduce Eli a little bit yeah, better. I wonder if... I'm sure our listeners are like, who is this fourth voice that I keep hearing on this podcast? It's just another one of Chad's personalities. Oh, is that it? <laughs> Chad, I'm really good at doing another you, voice. You have created your tulpa to the point that it is now sitting across from you at the table. Yeah. Chess. He also pays rent. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> we need to I pay. have mastered this thing. <laughs> now I'm just going to do about two more who can pay bills, and I think we're set. And one that'll buy a laundry for <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> Although, Eli, could do that for you if you really <laughs> needed that. No. <laughs> Oh boy. Eli is Chad's roommate and also our adopted brother. And you guys listen, he joined us first on the Personal Stories. Personal Stories episode because he had some personal stories and he decided he wanted to come and tell them. And apparently he thinks we're fun or something and he likes to come and chill oh. with us. Oh, it's a blast. Or, or he just gets a ride from Chad. <laughs> <laughs> it's an absolute blast. It's so. an absolute blast. Um, in fact, there's going to be some bonus content from our last two episodes that we recorded with Eli. That first 30 minutes that we record just pre-game stuff, basically, where we just talk into the mics and kind of get used to having the mics in front of us every sing episode. We sing and we do all kinds of stuff. I've edited those out, but those are some hilarious <laughs> 30 minutes. So uh, those will be getting uploaded to our Patreon page. So if you want to want to hear our our crazy antics pregame uh, check out Do our patreon it. so now on to madam blavatsky madam blavatsky yes helena petrova blavatsky way too many names dave take us away all right i got my information from gary lackman's book madam blavatsky the mother of modern spiritualism gary lockman is a widely respected writer along occult and esoteric themes. Some of his other works are Young the Mystic, Rudolf Steiner, Politics in the Occult, and A Secret History of the Consciousness. Our subject, Madame Blavatsky, was a mystic and occult writer, a spiritual seeker and a philosopher, who traveled five continents, including areas of the Far East when it was forbidden to Westerners. She co-founded the Theosophical Society, she is considered as one of the founders of modern spiritualism in the West. And if people remember back to our Tulpa episode, that is the very first time that we actually mentioned Blavatsky. And she had a huge part in the, the Tulpa Mansi, or the discovery of Tulpas brought over to the Western part of the world. Mm-hmm. And that was just one aspect of what she brought. Now, Lachman starts out by saying there were at least three versions of Madame Blavatsky. The Encyclopedia version, which he describes as a colorful rogue and breezy bohemian who pulled the wool over many intelligent eyes, but in the end was found out as a foul-mouthed, overweight, chain-smoking charlatan. Sounds like a lot of fun, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> However, evidence for these claims, as we will see, is questionable. The next is the pro-Blavatsky version, saintly, holy guru, following her destiny who fills the pages of more than one hagiography. A what? That's an idolized biography of a person. Ah. 
We're getting smarter. I literally had no idea what that word meant. (laughs) I was literally wondering if you knew how to pronounce it. So I was just like, uh. Embraced by her uncritical devotees who believe everything she said was the ultimate truth and who also maintain the strict letter of her law against any deviation. Then the third is the one the author Gary Lockman discovered as he investigated her life and times. This version is much more fascinating, surprising, and real. I'm reminded of the old adage, somewhere between two extremes lies the better truth. Very true. Very true. Madame Blavatsky was born Helena Petrovna von Hahn on August 12, 1831, in Ekaterinoslav in the Ukraine, which was part of Russia at the time. From the start, Helena caused trouble. Cholera was a very common thing at this time. Her teenage mother, Helena Andreevna, had the disease, and both prematurely born Helena Petrovna and her young mother were not expected to survive. Blavatsky herself would have a variety of illness for most of her life and more than once be close to death. Her entry into the world seemed to set the tone for the rest of her career. One tough bitch, what she is. <laughs> I like her. The local priest was rushed to perform the baptism. <laughs> baptism. <laughs> baptism. Hey, better, 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 better. Hey, better, better, better. The local priest was rushed to perform the baptism out of fear that she would die and her soul would be trapped in limbo. As the priest performed the sacrament, Helena Petrovna's child aunt Nadia Andreevna Fadiev. Fadiev? We've got Fadiev, sure. who is a central figure to her story, accidentally set the priest robes on fire with a candle. <laughs> wow. This sounds like something I would do. <laughs> that sounds like Amy Klutzness. Now, Helena's father, Peter von Hahn, was away when she was born and didn't meet her until anywhere from six months to a year later. He was a captain in the Royal Horse Artillery and a descendant of German nobility. He was part of many forces Tsar Nicholas I sent into Poland, then under Russian rule, to stop a nationalist rebellion. Russia under the rule of Nicholas I was a repressive police state, rife with spies, censorship, rigid control of education, publishing, and public life. Nicholas believed in the unlimited authority of the Tsar and the centrality of the Orthodox Church. His motto was, Orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. And it acted as a bulwark against fantasies of modernizing or westernizing Russia. Did anyone else royal horse artillery? Is it just me or did my brain go to like cartoons <laughs> and like cannon shooting horses? <laughs> just, <laughs> fire the stallions! <laughs> the first the first imagery ever with her being a chain smoking you know whatever, I was like now, Charlotte, get down and do the downward dog, okay? <laughs> <laughs> we got to do this right. Agnes, you can just call me Agnes. Hey, that's my other persona. <laughs> now we're good here. Now, I know we looked into this. What is the the time frame between Blavatsky and Rush, Rasputin? Is it, he was born like... Rasputin was born in... Around about 1869, so that would be... 38 years later. Yeah, 38 right. years later. So... Um, he was the one who befriended the Tsar Nicholas II. Okay, so this, this is Nicholas is, I? This is Nicholas I. All right. 
I just I recognized names and I thought, well, we'll clear that up too because it'd be kind of interesting if Blavatsky and Rasputin were like buddies or something. I don't know. Now Blavatsky, <laughs> she took that conservative credo and stood it on its head. She would become in every way unorthodox, subversive, and cosmopolitan. Because she rocks. <laughs> to get a better idea of Russia at this time, the first railway wouldn't open until Helena Petrovna was seven years old. It could be described as a primitive, barbaric land, a feudal state still stuck in the Middle Ages, at least according to Western Europeans. It was a Russia of serfs and aristocrats. Helena's family were of the minor nobility. Helena Petrovna's mother, Helena Andreevna, was the daughter of Princess Helena Pavlovna Dolkorikov. At this time, women were denied education. Young Helena Petrovna, her mother Helena Andreevna, and her grandmother, Princess Helena, had to rely on self-education. Helena Andreevna von Hahn was a renowned author who wrote under the pen name Zenaida Arva, mostly writing about the fate of unhappy women and other social issues. Some say her fiction inspired the women's movement. I want to just take a moment here to say that I am quite impressed with the way Dave is saying these Russian names. I would be butchering I'd them. I'd be all over the place. <laughs> I'm, I'm really just saying them with confidence. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing them right. <laughs> hey, it works. Helena Andreevna von Hahn was a sensitive, poetic, artistic soul. Peter von Hahn had a cutting, ironic sense of humor and a no-nonsense attitude that regarded his wife's literary pretensions with amused scorn. As with many children, Helena Petrovna von Hahn was a mesh of these two radically different ideologies. Embracing her mother's poetic, idealistic temperament and her father's fearlessness, pugnacity, which later attributed to her willingness to engage in a mental battle. A year after her father returned to Poland, the family moved to Romankov, an army town not far from where Helena Petrovna was born. Their stay was brief, and they moved around like this for a while. She grew up very much on the road, and rarely settled down in one place for any length of time throughout her life. Making the most out of a series of circumstances, Mother Helena and young Helena studied as much as they could. When they were moved to St. Petersburg, which was the most European city in Russia, they both found opportunity there. Helena Andreevna caught up on reading and devouring works in German, Italian, and English. She translated works of English novelist Edward Bulwer-Lytton for a literary magazine. Bulwer-Lytton's work would later prove an important influence on Helena Petrovna. They both knew that their time was short in St. Petersburg, never knowing where Peter's order would take them next. When he informed his family they were going back to the Ukraine, Helena Andreevna rebelled, and so Helena Petrovna's parents separated. Around this same time in 1837, when Helena was six, her maternal grandfather, Andrei Mikhailovich Faneyev, was appointed as a trustee for the nomadic Kalmyk Buddhist tribes of Astrakhan, a semi-Asiatic city in the mouth of the Volga, where the ancient river empties into the Caspian Sea. Helena Andreevna decided to move herself and her children with her father, since she didn't want to go back to the Ukraine with Peter. The family stayed in Astrakhan for a year, 
During this time, Helena Petrovna had her first contact with Tibetan Buddhism and Prince Tolman, the, the Kalmuk leader. The prince, his, the prince spent his days in prayer in a temple he had built for himself. The colors, images, incense, strange words, murmured in an unfamiliar language, made a deep impression on the six-year-old. Helena Petrovna would visit Prince Tuman again later in her life. As I said before, the family never stayed in one place for very long. They reunited with Peter, but Helena Andreevna's health was failing. After a time in Poltava, where a governess took over her motherly tasks, they moved to Odessa, where she could take mineral baths. Here they employed a British woman to teach the children English. Helena Petrovna would display a peculiar mastery of the language. Helena Andreevna's condition was getting worse. She was tubercular and pregnant, so a doctor was called in to live with the family. In June of 1840, when Helena Petrovna was nine, her brother Leonid was born. During this pregnancy and illness, Helena Andreevna continued to write. Something that Blavatsky herself would do years later, when illness and other woes pressed on her. Some pretty tough women in this family. Holy crap, yeah. I the found f- the difference between you and her, though, so far, Amy. She had a master of the English language. Ha! Ha! Burn! Ha! Huh. <laughs> 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 After this, the family moved to Poland and the Ukraine again. Helena Andreevna's condition grew worse. When they went back to Odessa, where she had friends and family that could visit her comfortably, on June 24, 1842, Helena Andreevna von Hahn, otherwise known as Zenaida Arva, died of tuberculosis at the age of 28. Helena Petrovna was nearly 11. The family was devastated, and the outside world shared their pain. Their critic Belinsky wrote a moving epitaph, and the loss of the young writer was widely mourned. Her mother, Princess Helena Plafovna Dolkorogov, cradled her as she passed. Her last words to her eldest daughter, Helena Petrovna, was that her life would not be that of other women, and that she would have much to suffer. How do you t- like? How do you take that? <laughs> Suffer, my child. But then again, I they, she probably completely understood. I'm just blown away who by she is. See, Helena was how old? She was eleven. Which means her. How many kids does she have? The three. mother, three. Yeah, three. By twenty-eight, like. Well, she was a she was a teen bride. Sixteen years old is when she had Helena. It, it's not. Yeah. It was not uncommon in those days. To well, marry know, your thirteen-year-old cousin. Well, I'm thinking even. more about just how much they did by the time she was twenty-eight. Oh yeah, I'm twenty-eight. And I haven't done a damn <laughs> thing. <laughs> wait, wait till you hear what Blavatsky accomplished by the time she yeah. was twenty. She'll make you feel really good about yourself. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, yeah, that seems really dark to say to a child, but if you remember back to the time they spent in. Ashtakam with Prince Tuman and had the influences of Tibetan Buddhism. In that mysterious at the time form of Buddhism, life is suffering. And the more suffering you endure, the more enlightenment you gain. True, true that. Yeah. Truth facts. Helena Petrovna and her younger siblings Vera and Leonid were sent to live with their maternal grandparents. Andrei Mikhailovich Fadiev and Helena Pavlovna Donkorogov in Saratov. 
Her aunt Nadia, who again is just a few years older than Helena, said that Helena was sympathetic to the lower class from a young age. She preferred to play with the servants' children than the children of her own class, and often made friends with the ragged street boys. She was equally obsessed with books. She also had the embarrassing habit of telling people what she thought of them straight to their faces. She was helpful to the needy and the oppressed, and was one to never hold a grudge. These traits would be in her later life, be part of Madame Blavatsky's legend. Well, it's not uncommon for children to just say it like it is. Yeah. I mean, that's... They're usually one of the most honest <laughs> yeah. things. On the and earth. as we have learned, children don't have filters. I remember one time going to Sonic and getting drinks, and the car hop was of smaller stature. I would not say that she was a little person, but she was right above little per- person status. And our daughter from the back seat. Why are you so little? 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 I'm like, Kylie, shush. (laughs) (laughs) When when I was reading this part of the book, it reminded me of the Golden Compass, the little girl on there. Yeah. Um, uh, Lyra Bellacqua. Yeah. Those are her names. She was very much like this. Yeah. Very inquisitive. Very matter of fact. I like it. Very nosy. (laughs) Um, According to Aunt Vera, Helena used to creep around the house of Saratov, which was old and full of underground tunnels, abandoned passages, unused turrets, dozens of weird nooks and corners. She played with unseen friends she called hunchbacks. She was fond of scaring the other children and herself with spooky tales. She could put pigeons to sleep with something she called, quote, Solomon's power. Even at the early age, she had animistic beliefs that extended to stones and decaying wood. How awesome would it be (laughs) to grow up in a house like that? Oh, absolutely. That would be amazing. That's like my dream is like have a house that has like secret passages and tunnels and all kinds of fun stuff. And turrets. Yeah, why not? And enough turrets that some of them could even be unused. So she spent the holiday in the summer camp of the Kalmuk Buddhist she had met before in Astrakhan. Prince Tuman had welcomed them and gave her lesson in the Tibetan prayer wheel. She would ride out to the Kyrgyz Steppe, which is a stretch of flatland that eventually led to Tibet. Tartar nomads traveled through this flatland, and Helena taught herself enough Tibetan to ask them questions about their life. During this time, strange experiences happened. She spoke of a protector whom she saw in her dreams. This is considered the first appearance of Madame Blavatsky's, quote, masters. She told A.P. Sennett, her first biographer, that in her early visions, his features never changed, and when she met him in real life, she instantly knew it was the same man. This man, this protector, could assume a palpable form. One day she was wandering the halls of the house of Saratov, looking at the portraits of the Dologurukov family. One painting in particular piqued her curiosity. It was high up and covered by a curtain. Since no one would tell Helena who it was of, she was bound to find out for herself. So she stacked up tables, chairs, and other furniture into a rickety heap. She actually managed to reach the top and pull back the curtain. 
It was then that she lost consciousness. When she awoke, she was lying safely on the floor. The furniture was back in place, and the curtain had been drawn back over, covering the mysterious portrait. She dismissed this as a dream because of her sleepwalking ailment, but it puzzled her as to why there were handprints in the dust on the walls next to the high painting. On another occasion, while she was on horseback, the horse bolted and she fell. Her foot got caught in the stirrup. This is a very dangerous situation to be in. But she described some strange sustaining power that held her head up until the animal was stopped. She later said it was a... A tall Indian in whole linen who had appeared to save her. The same figure she had seen in her dreams. Helen developed a thirst for needing to know what these protective forces were. She was in search of the unknown. At this point in her life, we can say that Helena's quest for the answers to life's mysteries began. Well, that kind of reminded me a little bit of Chad and their personal stories when you were talking about when you fell off the counter. Yeah. And you felt like somebody picked you up off the floor. Yeah. And there was actually nobody there at the time other than us who were in the other room. Yeah. I know that's kind of what made me think of. Yeah, I thought about that too when I was reading about this. And when we say Indian, are we talking India or are we talking Native American? India. Okay. India. Because she does later on come to America and have an encounter with Native Americans. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, we'll get to there. Foreshadow. Foreshadow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Spoiler. So, so her need drove her, and she found opportunity for it to be satisfied when she discovered the library of her great-grandfather, Prince Pavlov Vasilevich Dongorakafi, a military commander under Catherine the Great, initiated into Rosicrucian Freemasonry, toward the end of the 1770s. More specifically, he belonged to the Rite of Strict Observance. Now, the Rite of Strict Observance, which was founded in Germany in 1750, this library contained hundreds of books on alchemy, magic, and other cult sciences. She dug deep into these with the keenest interest just before the age of 15. She would have... If if females could have joined the Freemasons, she would have joined at 15, wouldn't she? Yeah. Definitely. If, re- if female, females could join the Freemasons in general, she probably would have been a Freemason. Just knowing her personality style. I mean, co-Freemasonry becomes a thing yeah. because of her influence and the influence of uh, Annie Besant. When Grandfather Andre was replaced as Governor of Saratov, she was appointed as Director of State Lands... And Transcaucasus. At fifteen? No, when oh, her when her grandfather was replaced I was like, as the governor. Jesus. <laughs> well, says as early as the age of fourteen down there, so yeah. yeah. Um before Helena and her siblings joined him in Tiflis, Georgia, they spent one year with Aunt Catherine Andreevna Witt, the mother of Helena Petrovna's cousin, Count Sergi Witt. They then made the trip to the Caucasus. Helena, age 16, recalled this as a time she had led a double life, which was mysterious and incomprehensible until she met, for the second time, her mysterious Indian. Even as early as age 14, she lived by day in her physical body, but at night her astral form took over. Madame Yermolov, wife of the governor of Tiflis, remembered Helena as a bright, fun-loving, delightful young lady. But as she became more and more absorbed with her great-grandfather's library, 
a more serious frame of mind came over her, and a life of parties and social gatherings began to pale. One friend of Helena's was Prince Alexandra Golitsyn, who frequently visited her new home. Helena could talk with him openly the ideas that obsessed her. According to most accounts, Alexander was a Freemason, mystic, and magician who traveled to Greece, India, Iran, and Egypt, always seeking out sacred places, as well as men and women with a passion for the spiritual and the occult. He encouraged Helena to travel in search of the unknown. There are even rumors that he suggests the two of them join forces and run off together, but he left Tiflis soon after. Because she wouldn't give it up to him. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Punch a brown cow. Um, we'll, get into, we'll get into that later. When Helena was 17, she decided to marry the then 40-something Nikifor Blavatsky, vice governor of the Providence of Irvian. There are many rumors as to why. One is that she did so despite her governess, who said that no man would have so unruly ill-tempered, and unpredictable a woman for a wife, not even the gentleman she had recently taunted and laughed at so much. Faced with such a challenge, the teenager cast her spell, and her plumeless raven was netted. Another story is that when hearing of the plan of her and Prince Alexander running away together, the family felt they needed to protect her honor in its own, and coerce the old Nikifor into making an honest woman of her. A third possibility is that she did it to anger her father, who had recently remarried to a Countess von Long. Through letters, Blavatsky tells a different story. Do you know why I married the old Blavatsky? Because whereas all the young men laughed at my magical superstitions, he believed in them. Suitors had so often talked to me about the sorcerers of the Irvian, of the mysterious sciences of the Kurds and the Persians that I took him in order to use him as a latch key to the ladder. But I never was his wife. Never have I been anyone's wife, as evil tongues have pretended. Never. Physically speaking, there's ever existed a girl or woman colder than I. I had a volcano in constant eruption in my brain and glaciers at the foot of the mountains. Now what she is referring to here is the Indian chakra, where the, quote, bottom of the mountain refers to the chakra of your sexual organs. She's telling the reader of this letter that she was frigid at the time and had that quality her entire life. But she's also making reference to a practice of taking those desires and moving them up your chakra system to put great ideas in your mind. She had second thoughts about the marriage and tried to get the family to call it off. She even asked Nikifor to let her out of it. He wouldn't. So Helena ran away for a few days to parts unknown. Then came to the conclusion a married woman would at least be beyond the control of her family. The wedding day was on July 7, 1849, when Helena was almost 18. It was a big affair with Kurdish horsemen riding in to honor the bride of their vice governor. The story goes, when the priest said... Quote, Thou shalt honor and obey thy husband. She muttered, I surely shall not. 
When no one was looking, she conspired with one of the Kurds to ride off to the Iranian border. The Kurd, however, informed Nikifor, and she was put under guard on the way to Daichishag, the summer residence of Irvian officials. For three whole months, she had to live with Nikifor. When they were back in Irvian, in the palace of Sardor, he let his guard down for a second, and Helena escaped and galloped off to Tiflis alone. I like how that's supposed to be. She muttered, and Amy like yells it. <laughs> she muttered. <laughs> Should I redo that? No, it's it's funny. I, I think. Surely uh, shall not. <laughs> I surely shall not. <laughs> yeah, because I, I had it more like she was like through gritted teeth, like I surely shall not. I can do that. I surely shall not. <laughs> not me. <laughs> and nice to say me. <laughs> That's neat. <laughs> the family argued with her about returning, and she swore she would rather die than go back to old Blavatsky. This was when the family decided it was best for her to return to her father, who was in St. Petersburg at the time. They made arrangements for them to meet in Odessa. Helena left with an elderly servant and a maid. They traveled to Pody on the Black Sea, where they would board a steamship. Boarding with her servants, they sailed to Kerch. She told her servants to secure lodging and they would travel to Odessa in the morning. Blavatsky had different plans. She sailed away in the night, leaving the servants behind. Because what they didn't know was that she bribed the captain. But then trouble arose with her and the captain when they reached the Bosporus. Helena secretly fled ashore. For the next nine years, aside from her father, who sent money when he could... No one in her family heard from her. I would just like to point out how truly American and oaky I am. Every time you say Odessa, I think of Texas. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Odessa. Odessa Permian. Blavatsky's first stop was Constantinople. Istanbul, not Constantinople, because it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. <laughs> That's the first time it popped in my head, too. That's right, modern-day Istanbul. It was here that she met Countess Kisilev by traveler's luck. They traveled together from here to Egypt, Greece, and Eastern Europe. In her article, The Luminous Circle, about the powers of the divining girl from Damascus, originally published in The Sun on January 2, 1876, in Para, the Mevlevli dervishes, followers of the 13th century Sufi master Rumi, had a lodge. In her account, Helena visits the dervish in search of a lost dog. The dervish induced clairvoyance into Blavatsky, and she finds the dog. Of course she was interested in more significant knowledge than how to find a lost pet, but the ideal of seeking out those who know comes through. A much more dramatic discovery also happened in Para. As Helena was walking through the town, she stumbled upon a body that had been stabbed several times. It was Agardi Metrovich, an Italian opera singer. A policeman offered for a price to push the body into the ditch for her. Helena saw the policeman eyeing her jewelry, so she flashed her pistol at him, and he went on his way. <laughs> so we get God shot dang. today. I'm just thinking, God dang it, another dead body. You know what, if we just push this in the ditch, we don't have to fill any paperwork out. I didn't see it, you didn't see, I didn't see it. it, we were all good. No. But, um, he wasn't dead. <gasps> 
No. She stood watch over Metrovich until she could arrange for him to be taken to a Greek hotel where he was known and could be cared for. She told them at the hotel he had been stabbed by a gang of Maltese and Corsicans ruffians, three in all who were in the service of the Jesuits. He survived the attack and made a recovery. Maltese are cute little fluffy white dogs. (laughs) (laughs) They don't go around stabbing people. (laughs) How did she know that they were ruffians? It was most likely a code referring to Haram Abif, who was assassinated by three ruffians for not divulging the secret, quote, Mason's word. Blavatsky most likely chose the name and number of attackers to communicate Argardi's and her own spiritual and political affiliations. Uh, she got all sneaky <laughs> and Cody, huh? Absolutely. Hmm. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? Because at this time, the Jesuits were very much murdering people that didn't agree with them. The Jesuits. I've heard it. Who are the Jesuits? Um, missionaries of the Catholic Church. Jesus headhunters. They're looking for people to join the church. Yeah. Convert the people to the church. Because Christian missionaries were also very common at this time. That's so gang-like. Sir, do you have a moment to speak about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? <laughs> no? Yink, yink, yink. Stab, stab, stab. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, Maltese. <laughs> but, Send Fluffy in after him. She'll clean up the jab. <laughs> Amy's dead. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. After Constantinople, she went to Greece and from there Cairo, where she met American artist, scholar, and traveler Albert Rawson, best known for his book, The Divine Origin of the Holy Bible, which was published when he was 17. He wrote many other books ranging on themes from religious history, Eastern geography, and language to Freemasonry and occultism. Albert Rawson describes this meeting in a 1978 article from The Spiritualist. He met Helena and Countess Kisilev at Shepherd's Hotel. He noted she and him dressed as a young Muslim man to move through Cairo to visit a Coptic magician named Paulos Metamon, whose address Helena got from Prince Alexander Gallitzin. Metamon quickly saw through their disguise. They explained they had come in order to learn from him. Metamon showed them his library of magic and astrology. Rawson remarks they tried to form a society for occult research with him, but were unsuccessful. Metamon, however, left the ideal open for a future time. I want to point out that since we have started living longer lifespans... We do a lot less shit until we're older. I don't think they were forced to grow up. Well, yeah. I mean, when you only live to like 40 on average yeah. at max, I mean, 20 probably, is midlife. So, they so start, they <laughs> you got to have a lot done. When you, you know, <laughs> seven, eight. I'm sitting there thinking, he, was publi- he published a book about the divine origin of the Holy Bible at 17. Well, I, I, mean, I, 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 I 17. I, I was, was cruising around in cars smoking cigarettes thinking I was cool at 17. Yeah. <laughs> I was playing Halo. Like, I was considering all. college, but I wasn't quite sold on it yet. <laughs> no. 
But yeah, but then, it, you know, they didn't have, they didn't live as long, so. You know where I was when I was 17? Joining the army. Joining the army. You're in the army now. It's a good movie, by the way. Yeah. That's a mm-hmm. good movie. Polly Shore, all Polly Shore movies were oh, good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Polly Shore was I awesome. mean, they were all the same, but they were still all so good. So it's 1851. Blavatsky is 20 years old. From Cairo, she crossed Europe and headed to Paris, bringing the knowledge she had learned about magic, occultism, Freemasonry, and related subjects from Rawson, Metamon, her grandfather's library, and many others with her. According to some accounts, she astonished the Freemasons. One person she impressed in particular was the mesmerist and spiritualist Victor Michael. Michael was familiar with astral projection and crystal gazing. He said Blavatsky was a wonderful trance subject. While in trance, she would become a completely different character. But on return, she would be subject to fits of anger. <laughs> God damn it for the fucking friend. <laughs> she, she was uh, what you'd describe as a pistol. Where? When she gets angry, she blows up angry. Yeah. She is my spirit animal. <laughs> so it sounds like Amy. <laughs> Except for instead of trance, I just mean a nap. But <laughs> hey. How dare you wake me up? I'm going to freaking have it. Stand the wheel. Hey, now. It's true. <laughs> Whatever. Like, Amy, don't talk to our baby that way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many times she threw things at me growing up. I'd wake her up because mom told me to. Mom was really good at telling me to go do it because she didn't want to get their things thrown at her. <laughs> And then they put a lock on her door, so then we just had to beat on the door until she woke up. Oh, that's that's quite a quite an quite a tale. <laughs> yep. Stink bombs are the way to wake my sisters. Stink yeah. bombs. Oh, yeah. Daddy's oh, coming oh, and tickle yeah. my feet, and I'd kick him. Oh yeah. yeah. Dad just came pour water on my times. face. Oh, that's the worst. One time, <laughs> one time, Papa came and poured water on my head, and after that, you hear Papa walking down the hallway. You need to get up because he was had a pitcher of water. Well, I remember it was laying one of those like take your well, it's take your daughter to work day, but of course, so we take your child to work day now. Take your child to work day, and I went with dad to work. Well, he had he was a salesman, so he would get up for work at like four thirty five o'clock in the morning. So he comes in, and he starts pouring water on my. He said he went through cu- two cups of water before I even woke up. Really, just slowly, like slowly, just. <laughs> Dribbling it on my face, and I just slept there, which let it drip through my face. Then he poured a whole cup on me, and that's finally what woke me up. <laughs> oh my goodness! I, I, I don't wake up well. Yeah, I'm, I'm a real sound sleeper too, and hard to wake up. Now, from Paris, Bavlatsky then headed to England. This is where she met her destiny. When Helena met Master Moria, this is perhaps the most important moment in her life. Although if the accounts of him saving her from that unruly horse as a child are true, she had met him to some extent already. Regardless of which account of them meeting is referenced, as there are up to five stories written about that, they all boil boil down to Moria had sought her out personally and had a special mission for her, and to fulfill it would require her to spend three years in Tibet, a place that at the time was forbidden for Westerners to enter. Who Moria was, what Blavinsky's mission was, and how she got into Tibet 
will be discussed later. He's a tulpa. Well, I'm sitting there thinking he's been showing himself to her. Basically her entire life. Right? That that doesn't sound right. Choices and words. <laughs> he's a pedophile is what you're saying. <laughs> I was going to say he's been pre- presenting himself, but that doesn't make it any better. Um, hey, look, hey, look, little girl. <laughs> I got candy. She's been seeing her or seeing him in her mind and what she feels is around her since she was a child. Correct. Guardian angel. Yeah. A reptilian. Reptilian. Well, well, more probably a Nordic. I don't know. Well, when they they talked about astral projection, projection though, um, and stuff like that, like the only experiences, like I've never had an experience like that. So I can't even start with a sentence like that. But what I've heard of, kind of read on my own a little bit about it, is that you can actually basically show yourselves to people that you choose to almost, though. Because, like, it's an out-of-body experience. Yeah, an astral projection, yeah. Like, if the idea... It kind of goes back to, like, the Topa episode we talked about a little bit. Because in an astral projection, you're sending your consciousness into the astral plane. Yeah. And in the, the your consciousness can make contact with other people in the astral plane. Yeah. Yeah. So either whether... Yeah, if he was astral projecting himself and looking for her and protecting her, but then it's still kind of weird with the whole, you know, saving her from hitting her head on... Yeah, because the then he's manifesting horse. into a physical, a physical energy. force and yeah. energy. Yeah, so that's either a very, very now. Now make no mistake here. This encounter she had with him in England was in the flesh. Like she actually met him in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but why. I... Like back to like the childhood though with the horse thing. I mean, that's that's a pretty powerful. Projector. She had also <laughs> he had also been in her dreams almost her entire life. That I mean, I have I've had dreams of meeting people and then it actually happened. I've shared you dreams know. with people before. Yeah. Like I have some dreams I hope I don't share with people. <laughs> <laughs> Dave and I have sometimes we've we've had like the same same or similar dreams, you know, that same night. Yeah. So that, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean that's possible. Sounds like Freddy Krueger. Y'all's dream bubbles are just too close to each other. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what the problem is. Right there. <laughs> like, like some Inception stuff. <laughs> dun, a dun, dream dun. within a dream. Well, they're all, dream. they're always a little different, but like the same subject matter and like yeah. same things are said. And like we've actually, well, I have had nights where I have projected or slash done like I was doing like meditation, and when you wake up from that. You haven't had rest. Like I know yeah. for me, I feel exhausted after yeah. I've woken up from a night of that's that. That's like how half my dreams are. Like, that's why I wake up exhausted. Like I know that this was actually not asleep. This was some type of projection or something because I wake up and I just feel as tired as I did when I went to bed or more tired. But it's still at that. I've never heard of anything manifesting. And when we did the Tulpa episode, we even talked to, well, I guess Silver Fox was saying that he had him bringing him cigarettes. So they were able to manipulate the material world. So he might have yeah. been able just to manipulate enough around her to keep her head from hitting the ground. And yeah, I know that's just really crazy, though. Yeah, that whole thing though is like med- it like ties into meditation as well, and just being one with like the universe and whatnot. One with well, the I mean, universe. Yeah. I mean, my mom, my mom was huge into meditation, and she thought that 
the universe in general was its own entity, but the, the entity was tied to everybody who was every li- living yeah. organism organism in the universe, not just on Earth. So it was it was very um, to to think that he could do that is is not not too far out of the picture yeah. whenever you really think about it. So, well, see, yeah. when I first learned to meditate, I learned to meditate. My, actually, our mom taught me how to meditate, and it was after the jet ski accident, and I was in so much physical pain, she taught me how to meditate so that I could actually get out of my body and not feel the pain. Yeah. I need to learn to meditate because I've never been able to do it. <laughs> I, mean, I can't shit my brain off for like 10 seconds. It takes, it takes me... If I haven't done it for a while, it can take me a few days to figure out how to, to, to get back into it. And it's just short little 15, 20 minute intervals here and there where it's just shutting your brain down for a minute. Now, it's hard for me to do that. My brain comes in and gets loud. And that's fine. That's just part of it. And the more you do it, the longer you get to go with shutting your brain out. But, yeah. I'm going to start doing it at work. I, <laughs> <laughs> I actually have meditated in my office many times. And I just when I'm really stressed out, Customer's been really hateful, and employee's been really hateful. I want to just go off on something. Are employees hateful? No. <laughs> see, see, now what Amy's talking about is like a guided meditation. Yeah. There's also mantric meditations. Tantric? Where, no, no, no. <laughs> man, mantric. <laughs> it's where you just repeat a sound over and over, either in um, your head or aloud. Yeah. That's what mom taught me how to do. I don't do that anymore, but yeah. And that's a good way to get started in it because it keeps your brain busy. And it keeps your body busy while you're doing See, it. See, this is what would happen with me if I tried that. That's why I don't hey. do it anymore. Because, yeah. See, my, my mom taught me to like to hey. focus, like if I was angry, she would tell me to repeat the word love. Or yeah. if I was in pain, she would like have me repeat the word relief or something like that. So it was always something to counteract what I was already feeling. And that's, I mean, she made me meditate. It yeah. wasn't because I had really, 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 really bad anger problems. I wish you would have worked on that this last week with your foot problem. I mean, I, I <laughs> that's a medical issue. Relief, 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 relief. That'd be awesome if that would work, though. It does. I just haven't tried. Bop. 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 Bip-da-ba-boo. <laughs> All right. Well, on a, on a serious note, though, what kind of what I'm thinking of when you're telling me this, how you're repeating this word, is that it's almost like a thought form. Like you're putting the thought yeah. out there of relief. You're creating a tulpa to help you. Well, not necessarily a tulpa, but a, but a thought form that attracts <laughs> other like thought forms. Exactly. And then it's grows. Like you, you see putting that energy into the universe for it to mm-hmm. refeed yeah. back yeah. into yeah. you. And that's exactly what it's for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which that probably actually would have worked this week if I actually yeah, should have tried it. Yeah, should try, try it. it tonight. Which yeah. was presented in Annie Besant's book, Thought Forms, that we talked about in episode twenty. Yeah, not necessarily the Tibetan thought forms or the chaos magic thought forms, but not the servitors or yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about them putting their negative aspects of themselves and stuff into it. Yeah, a tulpa or a, what do they call them? A Agregor or Elgor? No, um, maybe it was little buzz. And then casting them out so they didn't have it anymore. So oh, like, yeah, yeah. That type of thing. So feelings that they were having, roadblocks in front of them, things like that, they put into a tulpa and then cast it out so that they didn't have it. Boom. So by casting it out, are they releasing it? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 
So somewhere out there, there's a tulpa walking around with some Tibetan monks, you know, lusty anxiety issues. (laughs) 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 I was going to say, I must be the creation of someone's anti-things they don't like about themselves. (laughs) Just, well, I have depression, body aches. You need to put it in bad the eyes, and get rid of bad it. Bad hearing. It's because you were a football player in a past life. So all this thought form stuff we're talking about, and even the chakra stuff we're talking about, we wouldn't even be sitting here and talking about this today if it wasn't for Madame Blavatsky. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And we will get into that in later episodes. This is probably going to be a two to probably th- three, maybe a three, three part, part three maybe. Hopefully possibly we can squeeze four. it in three. Yeah. That way you guys can get onto something, you know, a little bit different. But yeah. three, hope three, maybe four, but But we'll try to get it as much information to you as possible about her because she is the reason why we even have a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. For the most I part, mean yeah. the, well the ability to talk about all this stuff, like and be open if she with it. Yeah. if she hadn't done what she's done, I mean, yeah, the ability to be open about all this stuff. The even the ideas of these things If it wasn't met for Madame Blavatsky. We'd be talking politics. No. Or no. sports. Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. Movies. Yes. Yes. Okay. But Music. Na- but yeah. now, I'm, I'm pretty sure this would be kind of like a, a, a contour like movie type deal if it wasn't like. Yeah. We've done an episode about uh, horror movies that way. Yeah. 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 And Chad and I did a whole episode about uh, Sabrina. Sabrina the teen- it's on uh, our Patreon. Teen- which Sabrina. Uh, Chilling, chilling, chilling uh, yeah. The chilly tales of Sabrina, Sabrina or whatever. The, yeah. the chilly tales. It was, dogs. Let's just say, once you watch it once, it's almost impossible to watch a second time. <laughs> it was almost impossible to watch it the first time. Very true. <laughs> I forced myself to watch the first like three episodes. I fell asleep <laughs> ten times watching the first episode the second time. I I didn't I didn't watch any of it. I'll just admit. <laughs> Lucky. The, the way y'all described it, it was like the writer. Knew nothing of the left hand path, and he just wrote it from the perspective of the right hand path, but replaced the name God with Satan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He it's very ve- much made Satanism. It's a very a ho- right hand path. Yeah. It's a very yeah. Hollywood yeah. Satanism, and not yeah. real. So, yeah. well, Hollywood is where he lives. No, it's Which, not. for some reason, <laughs> he lives in every one of our hearts. Is a yes, scarier Satanism. Oh yeah, oh hell we, yeah. But we don't view Christianity in that way, and it all boils down to the name of the deity. I view Christianity that way. I think. <laughs> I <do. laughs> well, I mean, society. I in think general. anybody who lives outside of the Christian norm, oh yeah, views it that way. Oh yeah, yeah. But at the same time, since it is kind of the norm, it's acceptable. Yeah, and so that would that would literally be like if 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 it, if the roles were reversed and 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 Satanism was the huge religion that everybody was, and then there was very few people who were Christians, you know, mm-hmm. it would be completely reversed, but it would be the same idealistic. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, I'm sure it's that way in places like you know Tibet and things like that, where Buddhism is the central religion. Oh yeah. So mm-hmm. the Christians are looked at as kind of the odd folks out there. Utah is I mean for that is as far as Mormonism goes too. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very huge. So So I mean whatever the norm is is what's lo- I mean everything what, outside of that is odd. Yeah. So in any world Madame Blavinsky is a little Blavatsky. Blavatsky. Madame Blavatsky is a little bit outside the norm. But she's a badass. She is a badass. 
Holy crap. And has done more in her 17 years of life up to this point. Or 18, 20 uh, 20 years of life up to this point. Than I've done in my entire life. When I was and probably past lives as well. (laughs) When I was seventeen was the first time I actually pulled up, uh, read a book about the occult, and it was uh, Scott Cunningham's uh, Wicca for the Solitary Practitioner. Okay, that that was the very first. Your Wiccan phase. (laughs) So that was your very first first taste of the the occult. Did you have black hair? No, I wanted it. <laughs> they, you dyed your hair dark, like I sp- dark, dark brown. I dyed once. it dark brown a couple of times. Yeah, now, I spray painted it black one yeah. time. Nice, that um, stuck together, didn't it? I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things. Like we were talking about this the other day. I walked. We were at the mall, and I walked past Top Topic, Hot Topic, and I was like, "Oh, I can't go in there." And then I'm like, "Wait, no, I can. I'm in my 30s. I can go wherever <laughs> I want." <laughs> but it was like for a brief second, I felt like a teenager again, and I wasn't allowed to go into Hot Topic. So, but by God, you did, didn't you? I actually, I didn't. Aww. I did go online and look at hot topic stuff, and I'm like, this is all like fangirl stuff. Like oh, hot yeah. topic, hot this, topic. This is like, there's nothing goth it's about changed, hot topic no. anymore. The thing about hot topic is it's. I guess a teen goth isn't it's, so much a thing. It's anymore. a teen store. Yeah, it's not much for adults. Same way it's, as any. I mean, the it's band shirts of like the popular bands at the time. I did want to get myself a Riverdale. Um, it's uh, Southside Serpent cult, jacket. Pop culture, <laughs> pop uh, popularity stuff. Like, yeah, there, there's time. Yeah, they play some screamo music and stuff like that. But that's like the darkest part of Hot Topic. Oh, yeah. Spencer's is way worse. Yeah, than I was going to say Spencer's <laughs> is what Hot Topic used to be. Yeah. No. And see, so we used to go into Spencer's all the time. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Hot Topic has always kind of been the place that sold the things for the counterculture of the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of, yeah. of the youth, at least. Now it's like the see, pop culture of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least from what their website looks like. I don't know. I've not actually shot. I, I haven't even been to the mall since I quit working in the mall. I go to the mall twice a year, and that's it. Really? One time yeah. to see Santa. It's been <laughs> eight years, or I guess Dean remembers it too. I've been to the, I've been to the mall twice in the past eight years. That's gonna do it for episode one of Madame Blavatsky. And like I said, we'll have a couple more episodes on this. Make sure to like us, review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. Leave comments. All that kind of fun stuff. Uh, you can like us, follow us, DM us, whatever you want to do to us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can email us at, oh, and that's at UNP Normalcy. You can also email us at UNP Normalcy at gmail.com. And also, don't forget to check out our Patreon page. For just a dollar a month, you can listen to Chad and I talk about how much Sabrina's warped our brains. And you can listen to Dave talk about gray aliens and you can hear our random weird cutouts from recording episodes and all the fun stuff that we do and until next week keep digging